Hey, everyone. Welcome back to another episode of The Julia LaRoche Show. Today's guest is Dan David, founder of Wolfpack Research, a short bias activist research firm. You might recognize Dan as the protagonist in the documentary film The China Hustle, which was from the producers of Enron, The Smartest Guys in the Room. This film was about a Wall Street heist story involving Chinese companies, the U.S. stock market, and a financial crime so big it has the power to affect all of our wallets. In this episode, we talk about exposing frauds in Chinese companies listed here in the U.S. We get his take on geopolitics and short selling today. I really enjoyed this conversation with Dan, and I think you will, too. Dan David, founder of Wolfpack Research. Great to see you and great to have you on the show. Welcome. Thanks for having me on, Julia. It's great to see you. It's been years. Of course, it's been a while. And this is actually our first time doing an interview together. So I'm really excited. And um, I guess like to kind of like help folks get to know you a bit. Um, you are the protagonist in a documentary uh, called The China Hustle for those who haven't seen it or maybe they have seen it. And I guess before we get into that, let's just kind of do a quick intro. Give us a quick background about yourself, Dan. Um, yeah, I don't know how far back you want to go, but uh, I, I wasn't always born into, uh, you know, short activism. That started for me uh, about 12 years ago uh, after the financial crisis. Uh, I had been working with my then partner, Maj Dan at Geo Investing, and he had a, a long only uh, small microcap research division uh, at Geo Investing, and we were invested in, you know, a lot of those kind of companies going into 2008, the crash. And as you may have heard, that was a, a tough time. Uh, we had two good years going into it, and in two months, just fell apart, down 75%. Uh, and we decided, you know, one, I was going to get more on the investing side rather than just the venture capital side of the Geo Investing business. Um, to help out, uh, and two, we would continue with this fund and and get all the money back. Uh, I know a lot of people, you know, that take a loss like that, dump their fund, start a new fund so they collect fees again. That didn't really work for us. There were just too many people we cared about. And as we looked at the style of investing, it was it was really value investing, and continuing that after. The financial crash made a lot of sense because there was going to be value. And most of that value we found were in the China RTOs. So we invested long, exclusively long, in the China RTOs in 2009 and picked up 229%. I mean, just absolutely killed it and thought, wow, we're pretty good at this. Uh, and then around, and we did the same due diligence there we did with American companies, like, you know, we'll interview the CEO, we'll interview the CFO, we'll go to the investment conferences and, you know, uh, you know, watch some old statesman, you know, spit all over himself at a, at a lectern and, and, and rock out at night at a Roth conference. Um, but you needed a, turns out, a much bigger layer of due diligence when it came to China. So around 2010, people like Carson and Block uh, and Alfred Little, who was John Carnes, started putting out reports saying that some companies that we were invested in were frauds. Now, a lot of these companies we had exited because they had a price target, not because we thought they were frauds. So, you know, we had to say to ourselves, look, we're, we're either good at what we do or we were lucky. And we better figure out which one it was because if we were lucky, we're going to lose all our money again. 
Uh, so we hired a, a, a team to go to China and look at 30 companies uh, and tell us that the shorts were wrong. Uh, that's what we knew was going to come back. And they came back and they said, the shorts are wrong. They're underestimating the problem. All 30 companies are a fraud. I mean, it's all out in the open. They're protecting villages. Um, and then from there, we decided to try and work with regulators to, to get the problem fixed, which was a really big dry hole. Yeah. So initially, um, for folks listening, you were long. You were long these stocks initially. Carson Block came out with that first uh, big report. I think that was Orient Paper. I think that's the one that came up it in the was. documentary. Yeah, and it was like just for folks listening, or you can go look this up. But it was just literally like piles of trash, and they were saying, "I don't even know how many." You could tell the story better than I can certainly tell it. But it was like an astonishing report. I look my my memory of it at the time, and again. Like I came from the corporate world. I came from a publicly listed company, a, a jewelry concern. Uh, it was over a billion dollar company and everybody that worked there would never even think of committing fraud. Right. And then, you know, so I just thought his report was wholesale BS. Uh, and I was at, I believe I was at a Rodman and Renshaw conference when that report came out and man, you saw some people just stand up straight and pucker up. It was, you know, for the most part, people wanted to dismiss it, but there were, there was a contention, including my partner, Maj, who said, you know, we better, we better not just dismiss this outright and look at it. And it, it turns out, you know, Carson was right. Yeah. And then you said, okay, so that's how you kind of got turned on to like, look, there's something here. Y'all, so you said, to go look at 30 different companies. Um, and they came back and they said, look, this you're underestimating this. So can you kind of just frame up for the folks on, um, you know, the the pervasiveness of the problem or what what was it that you all found? Just help folks listening understand like the how pervasive these frauds were and how it affects them too. Well, I mean, answering the last question first, uh, you know, a lot of people uh, then and now just don't believe they're invested in China. Uh, more and more, since the movie and since some legislation have come out, people are, are starting to understand that through their 401ks and their retirements, and everybody was invested in China. Uh, it was it was it was all going in, and so it's that ultimate skim game, right? Like generally, there wasn't you know one or two people uh, that invested a, a ton of money. Like you get, you know, you hear about the Paulson with Sinoforce, which is really Carson's big breakout uh, that lost a, a ton of money. But, you, you know, what you don't know is like there are millions of other people that lost a little bit of money that probably was more than what Paulson had lost. Uh, so it was that kind of skim game. Uh, and what it was is when you'd show up by appointment uh, with maybe an investment bank or with, with IR for that firm, there would just be this bustling business of people, you know, moving around, doing what you think they were doing, working hard. Uh, but if you showed up not by appointment, maybe a couple days later, uh, nothing happening, like smokestacks, no more smoke, electricity turned off, building empty. These were temporary workers. If you showed up a few days before the scheduled event, you'd see them ramping up for this and, people start to come in more and more and more and be put in place like a really choreographed, uh, you know, a show. Yeah. 
Like it, it was like a total charade. Like just they're playing like fake business, literally it's fake business. It's fake business. And, and look, I, I can't stress enough how we created this. It wasn't, you know, we, you know, I, I use this analogy a lot. And I, I go back to it because we, we had, we had exposed you, uh, international, a large chicken farming operation, um, as a fraud. And, uh, you know, a Chinese chicken farmer doesn't wake up one day and know how to defraud the U S capital markets. Uh, he has a lot of help. Uh, and it was, it was our, finders and uh, our financiers and our bankers who taught them how to do this. And in speaking to some of these CEOs, it kind of worked like this. This finder would show up and say, you know, would you like your business to grow exponentially and make more money, put your competitors out of business? And the answer is always going to be, of course. Um, well, this is how you do it. You go on the public markets and you tell them that you're this big. This is how big your company is, even though your company is this big. But when you get the money, you'll make your company this big. So nobody gets hurt and everything's going to be fine because you have good intentions here. And in the middle, these guys are all collecting huge fees, getting huge sums of shares that they're dumping on the market as soon as the thing goes public. And, you know, the, you know, the, the CEO over there, which these are not, you're not sophisticated CEOs at the time, especially 10 or 12 years ago, small mid-cap CEOs, if you think about Orient Paper, for instance, uh, and you know they, they thought they would get away with it. And when something went wrong, everybody on this side of the ocean would be like, wow, it's not my fault. It's that guy over there in China did it. And of course, it's not illegal in China for a Chinese citizen to steal from a U.S. citizen. So what are we going to do about it? And that guy over there is like, hey, I thought these guys were my friends. <laughs> and they told me how to do this. And nobody cared for a very long time. Yeah. A couple of things just to um, explore there. Um, so Chinese citizens can't get prosecuted for like defrauding the U U.S. folks. Um, yeah. So were they only defrauding um, U.S. investors? Yeah, no, I look, if you had, if, if you issued shares in China, uh, and, and, and some of these, a couple of these CEOs, I remember signed up for the energy, I, I forget his name, but you know, once he got in trouble here in the United States and money started to dry up, we got into a legal battle. I think he sued me for something like $250 million. It was, it was really fun. Um, and to raise money, he sold shares on the gray market in China. Uh, and that was a big no-no. And I believe they put him in jail for that. Uh, if you steal from a Chinese citizen, uh, well, they still have the death penalty uh, over there for, for theft. And have, have, you know, put a couple CEOs to death for, for financial fraud. Uh, but, I mean, if you do it to a U.S. citizen, they'll literally pin a medal on you. Uh, the chairman of Puta Coal, Ming Zhao, uh, you know, perpetrated $450 million fraud that we exposed and a year later was appointed to provincial Congress. You know, you're not elected, right? You're appointed to provincial Congress. Uh, and he stole $450 million. How about in the U.S., the bankers? So help folks understand, um, I know in the documentary there are a couple of banks, um, I don't even know if, well, I know Rodman and Renshaw is not around anymore, Um but help wow. us understand what the banker's role in this um, 
in this whole like, per, you know, pervasive fraud? Yeah, look, I mean, Rodman Redshaw was just purchased uh, by another uh, company. So they're still around. The, the people there, uh, for the most part, they were part of the China uh, banking team are not around, but they're they're in another bank. Uh, and yeah, I, I guess the movie focused on Rodman and, and Roth. And it's, it's a bit unfair because like, yeah, they they definitely did a lot of China deals, but so did a lot of other banks that it just so happened that, you know, Roth threw a great party and that, I guess, made for some good scenes in the movie. Uh, and there were a couple, there was a, a, a Matt Weikert worked for Roth. So there you go. But I could think of two or three other banks that, uh, or investment uh, boutiques that were way in on it and, uh, and, and helping cook the books. I don't know that Roth or Rodman cooked books or did things like that. Um, I think that it became a race to do as little due diligence as possible uh, with a lot of these banks, in my opinion, and just say, hey, we're just going to take things at face value or our diligence will consist of we're going to be there next Tuesday. That's Tuesday, right? We're going to be right. Okay. And, and you have that plausible deniability. Uh, but then there were some other, you know, smaller firms that uh, worked as a conduit that, that really did all the work uh, for these companies. And, uh, you know, to my knowledge, nobody really got in trouble. A couple of Reda CFOs. I remember there was one from Longway Petroleum um, who stepped away out of line and uh, got some trouble, but nobody really went to trouble. Nobody really went to jail. Dixon Lee at L&L Energy, he made the mistake of having a U.S. passport. So he was the only one that actually did go to jail, which was a pretty great sting operation that, uh, that our government pulled on him. Mm-hmm. The only one, like how, how many are we talking about? Like how many frauds? Hundreds. Hundreds. I mean, hundred, if you're just talking about CEOs, I mean, but well, look, there's CFOs, there's, uh, you know, there, there are the bankers involved. Now you're talking thousands of people involved. Uh, none of them went to jail. I mean, except for Dixon, uh, who just, you know, he, he, he really pushed it too far. And, and, and one of, one of his selling points to investors was, look, I'm not just some China-based CEO. I, I have a U.S. passport. Uh, and that was his Achilles heel because he was a U.S. citizen. They were able to prosecute him. Yeah. Let's talk about um, just to kind of like make it a little bit more clear for folks. Um, how like they how like everyday people may have been exposed. You mentioned through like their 401ks or retirements. But I just wonder sometimes when you see these companies listed on let's say the this New York Stock Exchange or the NASDAQ, wherever they list, I, I'll let you detail it. Sometimes you might think if you're an everyday investor, maybe that lends it some sort of credibility or maybe there's some process to even be able to list or something. Can you kind of walk me through like how this whole this whole thing worked? Help folks understand because it was they use a reverse merger process. They'd find like these defunct companies. Can you just kind of give like a timeline of how it worked? Well, how they were affected is like, look, look, I mean, CalPERS, you know, California's, uh, you know, Pension, teachers, retirement, Peasers in Pennsylvania, all of them, you know, Texas uh, had huge sums of money, hundreds of millions. Morgan Stanley's private equity, one, two, three, and four, you know, through Hong Kong, hundreds of millions of dollars um, at a time. Uh, so billions and billions were lost. 
Um, I mean, they, they, they would quote in the, in the movie 17, 18 million, it, well over 100 million. There's no doubt in my mind, especially if you take from peak market cap to, to the total loss. And you can't say people didn't invest up there because they do. Passive funds, right? They, they buy when money's coming in at any price and they sell when money's going out uh, at any price. They don't care. So how they became public was the reverse merger, reverse takeover, same thing basically. Say two companies merge at a certain point in time, they're both publicly listed companies. One of those companies leaves behind an empty shell uh, as they've merged with another company. Uh, and what uh, a private company can do is buy that empty shell and then revert, I mean, call it a mining company uh, uh, that was an empty shell. Well, boom, now you're you're uh, a coal mining company from China that merged in the shell. And that process maybe cost three to $500,000 rather than $5 million for a proper IPL uh, that does a lot more vetting. That's not to say there weren't IPO frauds. There definitely were. But there is more vetting uh, in an IPO. And it's also not to say that reverse mergers and RTOs are you know, all inherently bad. Same thing with SPACs. I mean, you look what happened to SPACs last year. Uh, you know, somebody could walk away from that just getting in investing and now say, oh, all SPACs are bad. They're not. Uh, but, you know, you can take advantage of some of these lax regulations. And they did. Yeah. Um, okay. I want to do like more of like a concrete example of one that you exposed. Um, I remember in the film, um, the way that you all did it, you had someone like try to sell some offer some tea to one of these yeah. companies. Can you do that? Can you just share that whole story of like how this all went down? Just explain it. And you can detail it as long as you'd like. Yeah. I mean, th there are a, a few examples. I guess the one you're talking about is the tea sales example. And, you know, this was another example of the company saying we have, you know, 5,000 employees and we have this many trucks coming in and out a day. And then you're, you're filming this company surreptitiously, right? Which is now considered spying in China and, and you know, will get you in all kinds of trouble. And you're showing that there's just a couple of trucks coming in and out a day for, you know, however long. And then you, you expose it. Well, you know, the companies learn, that, you know, the longer you fight back, the more time they have to get out of the shares they own or whatever. So they'll fight back and be like, well, these guys picked a day when, when we were shut down for, whatever special holiday, which was untrue, or that we had a retooling happening at that time, you know, so you had to get a little more creative. And we, we th you know, the one thing about China that's different than places of like Japan is that people are eager, eager to speak. I mean, they're just, they'll talk to you. Uh, and these are, these are some of the things I picked up growing up in Flint, Michigan, right? Like, you know, they had general motors plants everywhere. Uh, and, all the businesses around that plant knew exactly what was happening inside that plant because their, their livelihood depended on it. So we would speak to these people uh, ahead of time. And we're not looking for good information or bad information. We're just looking to see the truth of it. Uh, and, you know, we, we got the idea and we spoke to a gate guard at one point that was outside of work, whatever, uh, and asked how many people worked there. And we knew it was like 50 uh, so 
We then sent a tea salesman to the gate guard and said, look, we've got this great tea. We'd love to sell it to all your employees here. But before, you know, you know, we'd like them to try a free sample. Uh, so, you know, to do that, can you just fill out this form? Tell us how many people work here? How many samples should we leave? And boom, they fill it all out. And there it is. It's 50 people. Uh, and, you know, all of it's true. Um, you go back and forth. Like we've, we've done plenty of things like that. Uh, and they just really brave investigators. I have to tell you, really brave investigators do some of the things they do. Uh, putting up these cameras on, on telephone poles. Uh, I remember one of them got caught by security doing that. And, you know, rather than getting all flustered and saying, you know, oh, well, you caught me. He's like, hey, don't interfere with what I'm doing. I'm doing something official here, you know, with this telephone pole, and you better not interfere with my work. Security ended up holding the ladder for him. Oh, wow. Yeah. And they're like, okay, we'll keep an eye on that special piece of equipment you have up there. But it's just, you know, you had to really admire it. Yeah, I was going to say, like, how, how did you find people to, like, help you investigate or, like, you know, think of these ideas of a, like this company basically said we have 500 people. Obviously they did not. Um, and that there'd be a trucks going in and out, you would assume. But uh, through the tea salesperson, uh, you were able to figure out, oh, 50 uh, were working here. How do you, like, how do you find those people there to like go and put up the cameras or help you with your process? Well, I mean, there's, there's two things. One, they, you know, they are paying. They're probably better than uh, a salary than they would make, you know, otherwise. Um, I'd say three things, actually. And secondly, it's kind of exciting work. I mean, I think a lot of them found it fairly exciting until it wasn't. Uh, and three, listen, most people in China are not thieves and they're not liars. Uh, you know, the vast majority of them are just like us. And they don't like that, you know, these companies are lying to uh, other investors and, and making their entire country look bad. So their sense of national pride was, was saying, look, this is not what China's all about. China's about, you know, much bigger and better things and cooperation. Uh, our issues have never been with, with the people of China who have been a great help to us, uh, all Americans, really. Uh, it's with the government of China. Uh, mainly, and our government and bankers who, who taught some of these CEOs to do what they do. Yeah. Let me ask you this, because I've, I've heard you say this before. Um, it was probably at a conference a few years ago that you didn't, you didn't like the film or you weren't happy with it. Um, I, I could tell you my perspective. Like I liked it because I didn't know the pervasiveness of the fraud. Um, I just didn't know until I watched it. But what what was it that you didn't like about it? Yeah, that's interesting. Nobody's ever asked me that. Uh, I, I guess I, I have said that uh, before. And I'll, I'll, you know, one, being in it, I didn't, you know, seeing yourself up there doing that and knowing that really there are so many other people that were much better uh, at finance because uh, I was just getting into it for the most part. I mean, really, I learned to be a short seller before I learned to be an investor. Uh, and my partner was cut out of the film, uh, which I thought was incredibly unfair. Uh, Maj was, you know, arguably, you know, more important of the process than I was. Uh, I didn't like them going back to Flint. That was a big fight uh, because, you know, I knew from being there and other 
uh, documentaries and movies done about Flint that it's just like, hey, let's go film bombed out Beirut and talk about how bad Flint is. And that's, you know, that's really doesn't encapsulate the people of Flint and what it's like. It's a great place uh, to grow up, to live to this day. Uh, and they promised me they wouldn't do that. Uh, and the deal was that if I did go back, which is inarguably the worst part of the movie, it's terrible. Um, but, but if I did go back, they would spend more time with Maj and, and put him in the chair, as we call it, right, for those interviews. So, I mean, they did. They put him in there for three, four hours. Uh, and look, it's a big production. It's a lot of money being spent, I imagine, when, when they're doing that. So I thought, you know, that he would be in the movie. And when they showed me the, the original cut, that's the first thing I said. I'm like, you know, what, what? How did you cut him out of the movie? Except for one tiny little scene. And it was uh, it was contentious between Jed and I. But, you know, ultimately, I have to respect the fact that he's like, look, I'm the writer and I'm the director. It's my movie. And that's what it's going to be. We're not going to fight about it anymore. Uh, but my whole idea, because John Carnes and I and Maj came up with the idea for the China Hustle uh, and, and produced it for the first year uh, until Mark Cuban and, and Jigsaw came and bought it for, for receipts. I mean, there was no money involved. It was like, whatever you can provide a receipt for, we will return your money. Uh, and, and then they made their own movie. They used nothing that we did, which all we did was interview some people about you know, the problem. Um, so we, I had no control over what would happen, but what I had always envisioned and said was, you should follow Carson Block. He was inarguably the most successful at the time. Uh, Sino Force was a, a real seminal moment for everybody in the China RTO scandal, right? That's when it became real. You had Orient Paper, you had Rhino, uh, which was just a flabbergasting fraud that collapsed in a day. Um, and then we did Pudicol. You know, this is all within one, two months of each other. Uh, and CCME, the, the bus company that, that Carson had done, and he, that's four or five medium-sized companies that people believed in. They're like, fine, but when Sinoforce blew up and Paulson uh, took it in the, in the chops, that was a big deal. That was a really big deal. I, I was, I was um, just starting out like, as a hedge fund reporter at that time. And yeah, for folks listening or who don't know, like John Paulson was like, he's a big name, billionaire hedge fund manager, um, I guess shot, shot to fame during the, the housing crisis. Yeah, he got the right way. Yeah. Uh, so he was the smartest guy in the room, so to speak, right? Uh, you know, when it came to the housing bubble and made all that money. And lost and millions that, on Sinoforest. Well, he lost hundreds of millions. Hundreds yeah, of millions, yeah. Yeah. Fund, yeah. yeah. Uh, and, and Star Fund, uh, Ace Greenberg, uh, lost a ton of money on Sinoforest as well. Big, big funds lost money there. It wasn't just these smaller funds. Uh, and, and, it, and it became a real moment. It's like, like you're saying, Whenever you're talking about an event, you're like, I remember where I was. Uh, and you had nothing to do with the event. It's a pretty big deal. Yeah. Like that's a company name I would probably never forget because of just, you know, how gargantuan that was um, in terms of like the losses that you just referenced for Paulson and others. And yeah, I guess that's when Carson Block, um, really famed activist short seller, uh, kind of really was like coming on the scene and people, he's not like, I feel like he's a household name in this space now. Um, just like kind well, of, I mean, and look, we, we have to point out too, you want to, you want examples, right? You could not point out a more simple fraud in your life. Like when they're saying we're, we're taking timber 
these eating these big logs on these big trucks. And really, what, what did Carson Meets team do? And show these switchback dirt roads at a 90-degree angle going up a mountain saying, okay, this is how you're taking trucks up. And I mean, like, it just, you know. Impossible. It's an aha moment. Yeah. Yeah, that's it. Yeah, just like once you just, gosh, like once you like see how, it's impossible. It wouldn't work. Um, yeah. No. Or like the paper, when Orient paper literally looked like just piles of like trash from those images. It's valued at $5 million. Yeah. Um, yeah. And it, you know, that what was a quote that from Carson or his partner, if this is $5 million, the world is a much richer place than I had imagined. Uh, but but the defense that came out of, of Orient paper being the first one was vigorous. And same thing with uh, Santa Clean Energy, like with the lawsuits and that was, you know, these, a lot of these things became like running gun battles for, for a year or two. Uh, I remember having an investigator run off the road in China and had a gun point to his head. It was like, yeah, don't ever show up at the SEIC office asking for paperwork again. It got very, very serious very quickly uh, around 2011 and 12 as, as this became a fever pitch. Can you elaborate a bit more on like, on that, just help folks understand like how scary that was. Well, I mean, he was, <laughs> yeah, I can't, I can't explain enough how scared he was. He was, he was shaken, you know, when we talked to him and, and yeah, they, 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 they ran him off the road because they started monitoring the SAIC office where we would pull their local tax filing and SAIC filings is, is kind of what started this whole thing. And the thing about a communist country is that they have paperwork on everything and everybody, uh, much more so than we ever did. Uh, I mean, they have an ID card for everybody that tells you exactly where this person was born, where they were raised, where they worked. I mean, like, you know, where they travel. You can get all of this information was available. Uh, And when we started bringing these these SAIC um, uh, State Agency of Industry and Commerce, uh, tax filings out and comparing them to their what they would file here in the United States, they were a fraction of of what they were in uh, in in China. Like you look at CCME, that 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 bus company. I think it was I don't know. They said they did ninety million dollars, and then on their SCIC filings, they did like five. It was like it wasn't even close. So they started monitoring these offices and and picking up investigators and. Um, and threatening him in various ways um, until ultimately, you know, one did get arrested uh, and he got at least a five minute trial before he got, you know, two years in prison uh, making Christmas lights. So Merry Christmas. Wow. Um, gosh, it's just like, help me understand, like, it, this is still happening to this day. Like, are we still seeing like these fraudulent companies here listed here? Uh-huh. In the U.S., is that correct, or are we finally cracking down? Help us understand. Like, is this still going on today? Uh, it can, it does, not as much. I mean, it, we've won this round, so to speak, in in the sense that it's not happening as much. True, we lost all the money, uh, and we didn't get any of the money back because there's no there's no reciprocity. You can't pull back that money, uh, but there are a lot of people that are on this stuff, right? Um, I think things have really slowed down right now because of COVID. 
uh, and you can't move around uh, very well in China anymore. And, you know, the government of China has taken the opportunity with COVID to get even more deliberate about uh, their crackdown on their society uh, and personal freedoms. I mean, as an example, there's a bank in China, I, I believe it was in Guangdong that, or Hunan, that just absconded with everybody's money uh, and, and ran away. So people were going to go protest. Well, the government just turned all their all their ID cards red, you know, because now in China, if, if your phone is red, then you're on COVID lockdown. So it was to be used for, you know, somebody in your neighborhood got COVID, so that whole neighborhood would be locked down. Uh, and now it's being used for other political means, and it's gotten a lot harder to do the due diligence in China. But at the same time, it's gotten a lot harder for Chinese uh, uh, companies to be listed here too. Right. Are there? Still they're leaving. They're you know, leaving. So. You said. Yeah, I mean they're they're for the, they're listing in Hong Kong, right? Alibaba listed in Hong Kong. All the biggest companies are duly listed in Hong Kong, um, and it's so if they lose their shares here or there becomes a problem here in the United States. They are still listed somewhere else in the world. Uh, it's that that's why they're doing it. And you've got these macro political wins between the U.S. and China. And you know, can you imagine if if China does invade Taiwan, what that does to you know publicly listed companies, uh, China-based companies here in the United States? So they need to be listed in Hong Kong, uh, which is now part of China completely. I mean, there's no separate separation at all. Right. Yeah, there was a scene too, like um, when you went you went to the Sewn conference in Hong Kong. I don't know how many years ago, and you delivered one of your short your one of your short positions there. Can you tell that story? Yeah, I, I was the first one to do that, uh, which was you know it was a little scary the first time. So it was 2014, I believe I did it 2014, 15, and 16. But the, I, what they may have gotten was uh, 2015. But I know the first time that I did it, uh, it was on TechPro, uh, which was a Hong Kong listed company that was a complete fraud that, you know, ended up owning a soccer team in England and pissed all of them. I started getting letters from these people, you know, help us get our money back. I'm like, uh, you know, let me educate you on getting your money back out of China. But I, I mean, look, I, you know, I'm, I had my plane ticket in my pocket when I was on stage. I was, I was leaving right after the event. I was not staying. And Hong Kong was a relatively safe place there. I could tell you that it really, really changed over that three years. Like in 2014, you could have a conversation at dinner, maybe about, you know, how you didn't appreciate certain aspects of, of the PRC government. Um, in 2015, very hushed tones. And, you know, you got to be in the right restaurant, the right, comp right company. 2016, nobody was having that conversation. Like they're, they're kidnapping booksellers who are selling the wrong books. And I'm just like, you know, this place is just is, is really getting crazy uh, to talk about. And my my last year there, I remember when I, when I checked in, it was, it was great. Like, you know, you know, we have a room upgrade for you. And then. A manager comes out from behind, you know, this is, you know, maybe a better place in, in Hong Kong. And then another person comes out from behind the, the, the doors. So it's three people checking me in now and I've got this great room, whatever. Uh, you know, as soon as I turn on all my computers, they just start making noises I've never heard before. I mean, it's just 
like yeah. every device was screaming. Uh, and then I go out to the cab stand, which there's three or four taxis right there in front of the hotel on the property, which anybody would get into the front one. Uh, whenever I went out, the, 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 the guy out there would tip his hat, cab from across the street would come over, and that's the one I would have to take. Um, so it was everywhere you go, you're being monitored. Yeah. You mentioned the geopolitics. Let's talk, let's just kind of talk about, um, geopolitics, um, as it relates to China. Can you kind of like frame up your views or what are you focused on these days or what do you make of it? Uh, they're getting progressively worse. Uh, you know, you, nothing really seems to be moving the needle at this point. Uh, and, we are constantly capitulating. Uh, like you look at the the bipartisan legislation uh, that was passed in Congress, the Holy Foreign Companies Accountable Act, like it was 100% voted on by both sides of the, the, the House and Senate. When's the last time that happened? Not in my lifetime that I can remember. Uh, and it was like, look, you're going to follow uh, our accounting rules. And they were not the super stringent part of the China hustle, right? It wasn't, it wasn't even saying people will be responsible and, and it's not illegal. It'll, it'll now become illegal to steal from the US. No, it was simply saying that when the PCOB uh, or the SEC want the uh, uh, books and the accounting from this company, you have to provide them, which they have never done uh, since the beginning. Uh, and now we've capitulated to this, this, this compromise that, okay, we'll show you these books, but you have to come to Hong Kong to look at them. The, nobody there is not going to be under surveillance. So anything you find that's wrong, the government's going to know first, and there's going to be some kind of um, response, uh, whether it be people selling out of their shares before we do, or whether it be the government, you know, has attacked a fighting back, but this is us capitulating again. Uh, and their COVID policy is just, it's, it's crazy. I, I just wonder like how the people there are going to continue to put up with it. But, you know, we don't, we don't play the news in China and we don't even tell people here in the United States what they are saying about us. They blame it all on us. So there really is this national kind of, you know, fear of foreigners where 10 or 15 years ago, foreigners were looked upon very highly. Like you would want somebody that, you know, was a foreigner to promote your products or to, you know, whatever. I think had much, much more leeway on the streets, right? If you're, you know, maybe making trouble, I had a little too much to drink, whatever. Uh, it's, it's completely flipped. And there, there's, it's not as safe to be in China if you're a foreigner because we are being blamed for COVID. We're being blamed for any kind of financial downturn. We're being blamed for the Ukraine. Uh, they're they're using Russia's propaganda, uh, not they're not telling the truth about what's happening in Ukraine and supporting that completely. So, you know, it's coming to a fever pitch, and Xi Jinping is about to be um, you know appointed to his third term, which is unprecedented. Yeah, what do you, what do you think it means for people who invest in Chinese companies or even companies that do business over there? Do you think that that's a major risk? Yeah, I, I think that uh, that's why we're seeing a lot of these companies go to Vietnam. I mean, Vietnam right now looks like China 10, 15 years ago. 
buildings popping up all over the place. It's a much more hospitable environment for us to do business in. Uh, and what American companies want more than anything else is predictability, right? They want predictable earnings. That's why they never really wanted our, our relationship with China to change. And they didn't care who got ripped off because you know, they're going to get paid. They wanted predictable orders. And we as investors, we kind of force that issue, right? Because if you don't have predictable quarters and you don't make your year, you're, you're gone. Uh, so the Fortune 500 CEOs have been some of the most staunch, strongest foot soldiers uh, for uh, a China relationship that's not tilting back toward um, fair. I'm not saying favorable. I'm saying even fair. Uh, it's been very, very difficult. And, and now finally, with COVID, with that, that lockdown policy is, is really screwed up a lot of U.S. companies, they are looking elsewhere and, and there's some better places to be. Yeah. Um, I just want to also explore, change topics a little bit with you, but I want to explore short selling with you. And sometimes, I've I heard of it. Is a, yeah, I know. Um, but sometimes there's a lot of criticism of short selling. And like, yeah. what is it that people don't understand? What are they missing uh, when they just, and you see criticism everywhere. Well, look, I, I did not like short selling, you know, prior to understanding it myself. Uh, and, you know, I think it's a very American thing to, to bet on success. Um, and maybe not so American, maybe it's just a human thing, right? To, to want to see people be successful, to want to see companies be successful, to want to, to root for that. You know, there's the schadenfreude that comes later if somebody's too successful, but generally that's it. And then, and then I've found that once somebody uh, has made a decision, whatever they call due diligence, they read an article or maybe they did some more and they've made that decision. Who am I to tell them they're wrong? Right. I mean, I, I must be making it up. Uh, it, it just constantly happens that even with the track record we have, you'll still see today that somebody will just not even read the report and, and completely dismiss that we're crying fire in a crowded theater. And what, what I'm really saying is, no, the theater's on fire and you should probably leave. Uh, and it's a very, very hard job. I mean, look, you know, all the bad things in the world can happen to you when you're, when you're, when you're shorting, right? You know, you buy a stock and you put $10,000 in it, your max loss is going to be $10,000. You short a stock for $10,000, you can lose a hundred in, in seconds. It, it can go against you like that. So you really have to know what you're doing. Uh, but I think it's because we're betting against rather than for at the end of the day. I mean, I've had, I've had somebody show up in my house, like, you know, all pissed off, he lost three thousand dollars in his e trade account. That's that's the danger. Like an individual investor just showed up. Yeah, yeah. Uh, you know, you've uh, people ask me all the time, "Aren't you worried about China? You know, somebody hurting you from there or what?" No, no. I mean, they they get to steal the money and keep the money. Why are they going to add you know international murder to the list? But, I mean, uh, you know, from a public figure, I'm not worried about them. They've just got to go find another opportunity in somebody else's name. But somebody who lives near me that lost $3,000 and that's everything they have and they don't understand what happened and they can't talk to the company. The company won't talk to them. Like the, the conversation went something like that too, because, you know, at first it was, 
definitely tense. But I'm like, okay, what does the company have to say? Uh, well, they, you know, they can't talk to me because their lawyers won't let them talk to me. And I'm like, you think my lawyers want me talking to you? But I will. I'll tell you what happened. If you want, if you want to have a rational conversation, we can talk about it. But you're not going to stand in my driveway or in front of my house and have this happen. You know, we'll we'll, we'll do it at another point in time when things are a lot calmer. Yeah. It just okay. This is like more of a hypothetical, but it makes me wonder, like, if it if there weren't any short sellers, or if it wasn't for the short sellers, like, how pervasive do you think these frauds would have been, and maybe even the losses would have been even worse for retail investors had it not been for folks like yourself and Carson who uncovered these like blatant, obvious frauds. Well, of course that's true, but like nobody really cares. We're still, we, we are still, you know, you know, the fly in the ointment, you know, I mean, we're, we're still that, you know, crudge mudgeon at a, at a, at a great party where everybody's making money. We're, you know, uh, you know, we're, we're rolling the punch. It's always good. Nobody's going to feel that way. Somebody can, somebody can say that, but this is what I found that's sad, you know, uh, and it's specific to an American investor because I don't, no other world investors as well as I do American investors, but American investors would rather make money on a fraud than lose money on the truth. That is sad. But it's true. But it's true. I mean, they don't, they don't want anybody else to make money on a fraud. But if it comes down to them individually, they would rather, you know, hey, I'd rather make money on fraud than lose my last $3,000 or $30,000 on the truth. And that's where the fight breaks out. Yeah. And then we've got a legal system that is wholly taken advantage of by the rest of the world. Like, I mean, there's just, you know, the lawyers line up to write these deals, bring the, help bring them public, you know, be on their boards at times, defend their board members who do nothing. And then when a lawsuit breaks out between the company, they get to defend in the lawsuit too. This has been great for the legal profession here in the United States. Yeah. You know, um, there's something that I noticed in your bio. And um, when you like first introduce yourself in your bio, um, it says Dan David is a freedom of speech activist in the global financial markets. I want yeah. to talk to you about that. We've talked about freedom of speech quite a bit on this uh, podcast. Talk to me about... Um, you know, why is that like the top of your bio and why that's so important to you? It's how I won every lawsuit. Like, you know, I don't care how tough you think you are. The first time, you know, somebody shows up with a $250 million lawsuit and drops it on your, on your lap. I mean, you're going to pucker up a little bit. I mean, and it was a bit more money than I had. So, you know, you know this is 12 years ago. I mean, I don't get it as much anymore and I don't even care. Now, I mean, I've just been through it so many times. I know what we're saying is true. And and what defends us is the freedom of speech, because what we're saying is true. We're being responsible about what we're saying. And freedom of speech is what makes us different than China, because even though Kun Hong was an investigator who was telling the truth about silver core metals, he went to jail for two years. He got no trial. Basically, I mean, he showed up in a courtroom, but uh, it was faded complete. He's gone. Uh, and it's what makes our country great. And I know it's really hard to hear 
when you got the far right or the far left saying things that are just, you know, absolutely crazy. But at the same time, it makes it makes America America. And it you can't be an activist short seller without being a freedom of speech activist. You can't. Yeah, makes a lot of sense. Do you ever do you ever worry that um like we're kind of getting away from the importance of freedom freedom of speech here in the US? Is that something you ever think about or like worry about? Like daily, you mean? Yeah, just like in general, like, you know, free yeah, speech like and free speech culture, like every day. Yeah. yeah. Like every day. Yeah. Like every day. I, you know, I, I do worry about it. I mean, we don't really have, we don't really have news in the middle. I've got to go find it online somewhere where it's in the middle. I mean, MSNBC is unwatchable. Fox is unwatchable. And just to make them even worse, they come up with like a Newsmax or something. Like, I mean, like, and they're just two totally different truths right, that, that are being reported. Uh, and I, you know, look, you see riots going on that we had, they were horrible. And, you know, police brutality, nobody's for it, by the way. Uh, and and we, need, we need to do a better job with it. But like, it doesn't do any good when somebody that's calling themselves media uh, and, 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 and middle media standing in front of a burning car saying, you know, these have been mostly peaceful protests, okay except for the police car burning behind you, right? I mean, you don't, none of it makes sense anymore. Uh, so less and less people are, are engaging in a conversation where they might walk away disagreeing, but still have respect for each other. Yeah. Um, this is like a random thing I want to bring up with you because I was also I was listening to your podcast and I just have a question about your podcast. I was listening to your podcast before this one. Um, it's called I Hung Up on Warren Buffett. Oh. Did okay. you did you really hang up on Warren Buffett? Like, what's the story with the title? I really did. Really? Yeah. Can you tell uh, me that story? No. No. I can only tell you that it was the that uh to me, uh he's a very kind man who's done so much good in his life. Right. And I respect him so much that it was the kindest thing I could do at the moment. In the moment. Yeah. Like how, how long ago was this? Uh, let's say 2016, 17. He called you? No. Oh, you called him. Okay. I, I did not call him. I did not. Call Wait, him. how did y'all get on the phone? Somebody called him. <laughs> and you're on the line. Okay. Right. Okay. Somebody called him. You don't have to share yeah, the details. Someone called them in there, you know, at, at one point in time, it was like, it, it, it was inappropriate to make the call to begin with. Uh, and they're like, yeah, you know, Dan David from whatever. I'm just, and then, you know, handing me the phone. I'm just like, I just, no. Hung up. It's I'm, a not, good, I'm not wasting this important man's time. It's a good um, name for a podcast because it definitely gets your attention. Because so I was just like, I have to yeah, know. Like, you know, I, I yeah, I'll give actually I'll give it to Carson because you know, I mean Carson is, you know, uh he he's odd that way. Like he likes to, you know, uh he f- finds that funny. He, he found it funnier. I was actually pretty mortified, to be honest, <laughs> and, and pissed off. Uh but you know, dude, how many people have done that? <laughs> you think about it, like probably none. Or have had the opportunity to like be on the phone with him or talk to him, you know. Right. I mean, listen, if I wanted to talk to him, I'm sure I could talk to him. I mean, like, you know, 
I'm not to ask him about like, you know, why he gets McDonald's every morning. Uh, you know, there's got to be something important involved there. The producers of, you know, China also have done documentary work with him in the past. And he's, he's a wonderful guy. Uh, but yeah, uh, you know, I have a business relationship with Carson, as I've disclosed on CNBC or whatever. We also happen to be very good friends, uh, which is interesting. We didn't even know each other until 2014, when most of the China stuff was over. Uh, but yeah, I think I think he. I'm going to give him credit for that. He kind of talked me into it. God, um, I'm going to have to get Carson on the show at some point. But yeah, you mentioned like most of the China stuff ending like in 2014. Um, what are you focused on today? Like, what is interesting to you? Like, where are you kind of seeing more frauds or I don't, I mean, I'm saying the F word here, but I don't know what you want to call it. If it's always fraud that you go after or whatnot, but where are you seeing it kind of pop, pop up these days? Well, I mean, look, you know, th these days I, I'm focused more on what, you know, the, the term legal fraud, right? The, the kind of accounting shenanigans that, that hide bad debt, that you know, hide an untenable future. Uh, that like you, you looked at some of the SPACs we did or whatever, um, and you know, because of safe harbor rules being different, you know, the, these guys would come out and be like, "Hey, you know, uh, we make shoes, and our total addressable market is everybody with a foot." Uh, so you've got these companies that make these ridiculous claims. I mean, EV is you know something we're looking at. Because it's, you know, it's important, it's the future, and uh, a lot of charlatans know that. And, and they're making a lot of uh, uh, claims that just aren't true. Um, so with our rising interest rates, you're looking at companies that lived on debt and razor-thin margins, can't afford it anymore. Uh, and you know, what do they think is going to happen? There's going to be some kind of pivot next year for the Fed and we're going to go from, you know, 6% mortgage rates to two again or three. No, no, you're going to have to live in this environment now. We've cooked it for too long. Uh, so I think over the next two or three years, you're, you're just going to see companies that are going to go bankrupt uh, and it's calling it first uh, and, and getting people off the Titanic uh, that, that we're focusing on. Yeah, like the financial situation there. And then um, you mentioned like the charlatans popping up in areas that are the future or hot. Gosh, I just wonder, um, because when you go back in time and you see like very well publicized um, frauds that came to light because of short sellers, I think that's important to note. Like the why Enron. Enron being one of them. Um, yeah, why, is this like part of just human nature that these will all, there will always be fraud because even they can't even like look to the past and say, hmm, that was a bad idea or that was a terrible outcome. Like, do you think it's just something that's just inherent? Like people will, not all people, but frauds will always be just part of society. Well, I, I mean, especially now, uh, like I, you know, in my last podcast, I had, you know, uh, SEC commissioner Hester and you know we talked about we talked about the fact that hey you know you know what I've noticed nobody goes to jail it might be illegal to steal from investors here in the United States but unless you're poor or middle class you're not going to jail uh, you're going to pay a fine and it's going to be the company paying the fine which is you know taking advantage of shareholders twice once when management made the misstatements they made or fraud 
And you can think of some of the biggest banks in the world that have paid hundreds of millions of dollars for fraud, right? Well, banks don't commit fraud. Companies do not commit fraud. People at companies commit fraud. But really what this bank is saying, or these companies are saying, is I'll pay this $250 million fine, but I'll pay twice that if you try to put somebody in jail defending yourselves. And now, now the SEC or DLJ is looking at, you know, $500 million of defense coming at them. Uh, and it, it's a lot to swallow. So, you know, people are getting off with fines that they don't have to pay and they get to keep the money they stole. I mean, it's, you know, in a lot of ways, not much better than China. Yeah. Like there's no accountability for like the individual's decisions. No. When's the last time somebody went to jail? Uh, you know, a corporate CEO, I guess Trevor Milton's on trial right now. Is that a civil trial, criminal trial? I mean, you think Trevor Milton's going to go to jail? Hmm. I mean, Elizabeth Holmes? Yeah, this is a uh, um, guy from Nicola. Right. For folks listening. Yeah. Right. Uh, I mean, how much time is Elizabeth Holmes going to get? Or Sonny Balwani? I mean, like, really? I mean, you get you get low-level drug offenders that get more time than these, these people will get for stealing hundreds of millions of dollars. So, yeah, fraud's going to continue. Yeah, certainly something to think about. Um, and I know you will continue to do your work uncovering it. Um, Dan, I just want to pass it back to you if you have any parting thoughts for folks or where they can like learn more about your research or what you're up to or give you a few more minutes. Well, I mean, look, you know, you, you mentioned, uh, thank you, uh, my podcast. I hung up on Warren Buffett uh, because I did. <laughs> uh, uh, and it's on our Wolfpack site, which has our research as well as kind of a separate uh, uh, concern. Uh, and, you know, the podcast is a, a, a breadth and assortment of individuals from finance to science uh, and politics. Um, yes, I speak to some of the best and worst individuals. You know, I, 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 get, I get hassled sometimes for a couple of the, the people I put on my podcast, but it's like, hey, man, you know, as, as long as they're not saying the same thing, that they're saying on whatever news channel, which is just kind of machine gun politics, and they're willing to talk about themselves and their view in a different way, then, then we'll have that conversation. Um, and yeah, when we put out a report, it'll, it'll come out of wolfpack.com. We should have one coming out in the next month or so. Uh, and we'll continue to do that work, exposing fraud and financial shenanigans. Well, Dan David, founder of Wolfpack Research, I thank you so much for being so generous with your time and um, really sharing some illuminating thoughts, uh, especially when it comes to short selling and exposing frauds. Thanks for having me on, Julia, and uh, great job with your show. Best of luck with it. I'm sure you're going to be very successful. Thank you so much. Take care. Thank you.